0: Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, we're talking scoundrels. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Professor Mark Hanna from the University of California, San Diego, about pirates and some of the records and what you need to know about them. Plus, an ordinary person with an extraordinary find and a family connection to Jesse James. Jesse James. And how do you find your World War II ancestors' records? We'll talk to expert Melanie McComb on how to execute that journey. It's a busy week on Extreme Genes, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hey, thanks for joining us for America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. My name is Fisher. I am your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree... And watch the nuts fall out. And, of course, if you've never been with us before, this is where we come up with all kinds of great stories for you about discoveries that people have made, including one of my guests today, Jen Rickards. She's from the St. Louis area, and she's tied in one of her husband's ancestors to Jesse James. But on the good side of the law, you're going to want to hear what she found and how she found it. And we're going to talk to Dr. Mark Hanna. He is a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and he talks about pirates, The Pirate Next Door, how they would often come back from overseas and all the horrible things they did and just live normal lives among the Puritans. And you'll want to hear what he has to say. Right now, it's time to head off to Boston because David Allen Lambert is standing by. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. David, did you get the Bible you've been waiting for?
1: It just arrived yesterday, and I was so delighted that it showed up in one piece. Well, the cover's loose.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, two pieces then. Yeah,
1: two pieces, but eight to ten pounder. First time in America. It's now been in the home of each one of the children of my great-grandparents.
2: Interesting.
1: The, yeah, dates go back to 1874, including current handwriting of one of my great-aunts who lived until her late 90s when she died in 1995.
0: So what excited. a great find. What a great thing. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. And I understand you recently dialed up some information on your family.
0: <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I found out that my great grandfather's business actually wound up having a telephone put in by 1895 because there, there was this national phone directory that's about the size of somebody's local phone book these days. And it had this general information at the beginning that I thought was really interesting. It said, from 1895, a careful observance of the following will aid materially in securing good service. To call central office, give the bell crank one sharp turn. Then take the hand telephone from the hook. Place it firmly against the ear and listen for the operator, who should answer, what number? give the operator the location and number of the station desired. For example, New York, Cortland 1520, Chicago, Maine 52. The operator will then repeat back your order and may, to avoid errors and to expedite the service, ask for further information in relation to the station called for. In talking, speak directly into the transmitter with lips as close as possible to the mouthpiece. When you are through talking, return the hand telephone to the hook, give the bell crank one sharp turn to note the operator that you have completed your conversation. That's how it went in 1895. Isn't that amazing? That is. And can you imagine
1: that a cell phone back then would have been the size of a normal refrigerator?
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. All right, let's get on with our family. history. to our news. David, where do we start?
1: Well, actually, this is going to be a little bit of a shout out. I got a really cute tweet in regard to extreme genes the other day. And I thought I'd share that Jennifer Hooper, who is Jen Hooper on Twitter, wrote how to tell your kids. Kids are absorbing genealogy. Listen to every podcast you can Buy Extreme Genes on road trips and around town. Your 12-year-old daughter will play a video game weeks later and bring it to your attention that she hears Extreme Genes theme in every game song. <laughs> <laughs> so our newest fan out there, Samantha Grace thanks for listening, and thanks for paying attention, even if we happen to be in
0: your video game. That's awesome! I like that, but no, this is an original theme, you know? It's it a, really is. It takes some effort to create something like that. <laughs> I think it does. Maybe
1: some video game has stolen it. We'll have to find out what the game is now and play it online. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I always love in Family History News, Titanic stories. Not I don't mean size, I mean the actual Titanic. And recently at auction, a surviving cane. Not just any cane, but a light-up cane from 1912 went up for auction that was from passenger Ella White that helped guide Lifeboat 8. 25 passengers were able to get to safety because of this.
0: Wow, and it went for $62,500. They were thinking it was going to go for like three to 500000 So I'm thinking somebody stole it at this auction.
3: And I'll
1: tell you, I hope that they can get the battery so fit in the cane yeah. from 1912. <laughs> Good thought there. <laughs> well, you know, the Titanic was discovered back in 1985 by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, and the director of that project was Bob Ballard. And Bob Ballard is at it again 30-plus years later. He is now in search of a smaller item, the plane that carried Amelia Earhart and was never seen again.
0: Yeah, they're making great progress on this, too. Lots of clues on an island out there in the Pacific. I'm not going to be surprised if they put this together at some point.
1: Well, I'll tell you, if they do find her, I hope we can get her as a guest on Extreme Genes. (laughs) (laughs) She'd be very old now, David. That's true. That's true. Well, a super centenarian. Yes. The next thing I want to bring to your attention is Shamrock genealogist Melanie McComb has done it again. She has told us about a hearth tax that is now available online. Back in 17th century England, a tax was levied on people who had a hearth, basically. And now in in your home, this digital tax is now available for Yorkshire, Durham, Middlesex, Westminster, and the city of London. And other returns for other parts of England are going to be soon in the pipeline. And it can be found online at GAMS, G-A-M-S dot U-N-I hyphen G-R-A-Z is in zebra dot A-T. And again, it's free, and it is a work in progress, so maybe you might find your 1600s ancestors before they came over to America. Catch you around
0: next time, my friend. David, have a great one. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Take care. And coming up next, we're going to talk to Dr. Mark Hanna from the University of California, San Diego, about the Pirate Next Door, how they assimilated back into normal American society after their adventures on the high seas. And I'm really excited to have on the line with me right now, Dr. Mark Hanna. He is a professor at UC San Diego. A couple of years ago, he wrote in Humanities Magazine about the Pirate Next Door. And some of the things that we've learned about pirates that uh, that aren't really true and uh, some of the true things that we've never been told. And it's a really interesting article, Mark. It's great to have you on the show. Welcome.
2: Bishop, thanks for having
0: me on. You know, I I know that there are more people than just myself who have discovered pirates in their background. But I think the thing that I discovered for myself that was most unique about uh, this guy, William Downs, who was part of the crew of The Fancy with uh, Captain Henry Every, is that he lived a pretty normal life after that. And your story here a couple of years ago talked about this. The pirate next door pretty much says it all. They were just ordinary folks. How was it that they were able to be accepted back into the community after doing some really horrible things?
2: I think it's so strangely shocking for a lot of people to find out that uh, many of the sort of most notorious pirates of the early modern period actually settled down in and bought land and no longer went to sea again and actually lived sometimes fairly quiet lives. And that was the sort of central premise of my book, uh, which the article was about, uh, the book is Pirate Nests and the Rise of the British Empire. That article is essentially sort of trying to explain in just sort of a small story exactly the kind of bigger picture world that I was finding uh, in the early modern period, which is people going out to sea, often at a young age, hoping for some... Big score, and then eventually coming home, buying land, and settling down, never going back to sea again. Right. Uh, And it happened a lot more than we thought.
0: Well, what surprised me about it was your explanation about why it was that places like Newport, Rhode Island would become pirates nests where they were basically released from prison. Or if they actually wound up going to trial, they were found not guilty and released. And, and yet the English government, the powerful English government, the most powerful Navy in the world couldn't do anything to these people once they landed in places like Rhode Island.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for why they were so openly welcomed. It's multiple variables that I sort of pull apart, lots of details in the book, but in a very sort of simple way, there are economic reasons, legal reasons, political reasons, and even religious and cultural reasons that created this sort of atmosphere where it seemed all right to allow someone to come from plundering the Mughal Empire and the Indian Ocean and welcome them back into Newport and allow them to buy land or become customs officials. Some of the sort of main reasons would be, for example, a major economic crisis in the 1690s that was alleviated by a lot of the gold and silver that came out of the Indian Ocean that had actually been coming from the Caribbean against the Spanish for years in the 1670s and 80s and now came from the Indian Ocean. There also were religious reasons, which is the primary victims of the people I wrote about in that article, were the ships belonging to the Mughal Empire, which is the large Muslim Empire, which is in today India. And these people, who are often Quakers, actually, didn't really perceive what they were supporting was, in fact, somehow a problem. You know, these people were, in many respects, religious zealots, and, you know, we would consider them sort of religious bigots, but they were uh, very much sort of in support of just kind of by on activity, at least willing to turn a blind eye to it, which I think they probably did more than than actively engage it.
0: So they're like looking at these other people as infidels, right? So it didn't really much matter. And I suppose to some extent it had to be a tit for tat, right? Because their ships would attack those who had come out of the colonies as well, right?
2: Uh, Yes and no. I mean, in fact, one of the things that makes what they were doing so troubling is the Mughal empire is very much at peace with england and the east india company was making huge amounts of profits from trading legally with the Mughal empire and so this was actually quite painful for the british government because they did not want to upset the mughal empire and they had been at peace with the mughal empire and so these colonists were, in fact, supporting activity that was very good for them on a local level, but not for the sort of empire as a whole. And, and part of, I think, what happened over the course of years subsequent to what I was writing about, that they eventually became a sort of mutual understanding of why this was a problem. You know, England was very much at peace with the Mughal Empire, and mm-hmm. that, that's what makes these people pirates and not something else.
0: Right, that's right, because if they weren't, then it's basically privateering, and that was all, That was always pretty much accepted, too, Right.
2: Sure. And that was actually its own complicated legal world as well, which is essentially people being provided paperwork by local authorities to allow them to attack the enemies during wartime. But privateering, of course, got manipulated and used in its own ways and could be abused over and over again.
0: It's kind of amazing to me because I've read so much about these pirates who got released from jail or that people look the other way. And then, like in the case of my seventh great-grandfather, William Downs, he winds up marrying a Puritan woman. And uh, she was the great-granddaughter of uh, John Howland from the Mayflower. And you just think, well, how does the Puritan community accept these people, you know?
2: One thing that people— who don't know a lot about Puritans or don't really know much of the history of Puritans, but Puritans are people who want to purify the Protestant Church. They want to actually proceed and push the Protestant Reformation as far as it should go by eliminating man-made things that were against the original Church. And so some of the most intense Puritans were the most militant. Mm -hmm. They didn't simply believe reforming the Church, but they also believe destroying the Catholic Church, which many consider the Antichrist, or destroying Islam. And so even though we think of Puritans as wearing buckles and black outfits. But in fact, a lot of them are very much aggressive militant people who are very much in support of an active war against what they consider the Antichrist. And so some of the people who would have come back from the Indian Ocean, and they would go to the local taverns and tell stories about blowing up mosques that made a lot of people we would call Puritans, and made a lot of them very happy.
0: You know, I wouldn't have ever thought of it that way. And one of the pirates who actually was released did run a pub right there in the middle of Newport. And his name was on the list that was uh, issued in the proclamation by King William III when he wanted these pirates captured and brought home. And many of them were hanged when they got back to Britain. Others obviously found a much better place to stay right there in the colonies.
2: Right. I mean, it's it really actually the, the number who were actually caught of these guys from the Indian Ocean is very slim, but there's a handful that ended up being a, a very important 6096 trial in London, uh, and they were executed. But essentially, a ship would, would come from the Indian Ocean. They would sail up past Florida, and they would just drop a handful of guys off in Charleston and drop a handful of guys off in the Delaware Bay, someone going to New Jersey or others were going to Philadelphia. They'd drop a few more off in Newport. <laughs> And so they didn't sort of show up all at one big ship with right. a pirate crew. Yeah. They would just sort of filter themselves into the local community. Now, the most egregious was a guy who went, ended up in the Delaware Bay and met the governor, William Markham, yeah. who was obviously very impressed with meeting this guy, and he had him marry his daughter. And so
0: it became <laughs> one of the more notorious stories. That is notorious. And, of course, Jim Bailey's recent research is implying that the Seaflower, which came into uh, Newport in the late 1600s, the first slave ship in there, was actually a cover for Henry Every's people, so that people would think it was a slave ship and not all these guys who were wanted for piracy.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely possible. My own work doesn't verify or take away from that. But there's basically two years where each spring slowly these ships arrive and and what's interesting is, every one of these colonies, the vast majority were very welcoming. And it really ended up being a handful of officials who were trying to chase them down with not a lot of support.
0: Well, there are a lot of people who were saying they were going to help the crown and they were going to bow to the king's wishes and all that. And they still look the other way, right?
2: Sure. I mean, I think there's ended up being about five or six people that I write about. Some of them were governors and some of them were customs officials. But the problem is it's very difficult to chase after pirates who've been spending their money in your local community or married to your daughter (laughs) uh, and expect to have have a lot of support. A lot of support there. But the
0: culture did change ultimately, and it was really quite remarkable how it was done.
2: Yeah, in many ways, there was an economic change, which is a lot of goods that were being brought from the Indian Ocean actually ended up arriving legally and at a much cheaper rate, in large part because of acts that were uh, created in England that were challenging the East India Company. And so you had ended up having legal goods arrive at a more reasonable rate.
0: What time period was that?
2: So the last of the Navigation Acts was signed in 1696, which starts to implement a new court system. That doesn't really get formally settled until around 1701, and then the very first trial held with a new structured admiralty court was in 1704 in Boston, and that was a trial that was using a type of law, civil law, that didn't require a jury. Mm. It was very controversial, very upsetting to a lot of local people, because the man was executed without a jury of one's peers. But over time, that court system ends up being more acceptable to people once they realize they don't really need to be so active in supporting these men from taking their goods from all around the world.
0: I'm, I'm just wondering, are there any databases out there where people can look up and see if their ancestors may have been pirates? Uh,
2: yeah, that's a good question. There are a lot of databases that actually can tell you about the history of piracy and so give you names. Some of them you'd have to go to a library that owns and actually has paid for these databases. So one would be known as the Colonial Office Records. And sometimes those are online and there are certain universities that have them. So if you went to a university, you could type in Colonial Office Records. And those, if you typed in pirate, you might see names of people who are being accused or noted as being a local pirate. And then there's a lot of local stories. I mean, actually, many of the colonies have compiled and edited volumes of their colonial records. So a lot of the stories that I tell about, for example, Philadelphia, you can find in Pennsylvania colony records that you can get at Decent Research University or you can find in Philadelphia.
0: He's Dr. Mark Hanna. Thanks so much, doctor, for coming on and uh, really enjoyed it. It was great talking to you. It's always fun to run across ordinary people with extraordinary finds and how they found them. And one of those people is Jen Records, and she's uh, near St. Louis, Missouri. Jen, how are you? Welcome to Extreme Jeans.
3: I'm great, Fisher. Thanks for having me. I'm real excited to
0: be here. Well, your story makes me excited to have you here. And, you know, it it is fun because, as you've mentioned to me off air, you know, as you go about your research, you're looking for just the usual things to try to fill out a picture of an individual. And then something comes along and you have to follow it all the way down the rabbit hole and and see what it shows. And tell us about your little journey with Jesse James.
3: Yes. When I first started my research back in uh, 2012, I was still just getting into it and learning and making connections with distant relatives, and I got in contact with a cousin, Bob Richardson. He lives in Seattle, and he's been doing research on the family for many, many years. And he originally brought me the story telling me on my husband's side, their second great-grandfather, Joseph Henry Rickards, and he's known as Sheriff Joe Rickards. And he said the reason he remembers him is because of his infamous run-in with Jesse James. (laughs) And I'm immediately like, really? Tell me more. I'm I'm fascinated by this. So that's how it originally came about. He shared some newspaper articles and a couple of books that had told this unknown story. My husband, Mark, his second great-grandfather, is the only man in history to ever put Jesse James and the James Gang behind bars.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> now, how does, yeah. how does Mark's family feel about this connection?
3: They were completely blown away and excited, you know, that they, they didn't realize that they had this connection with that. They just knew that he'd lived in Liberty, Missouri, and that was about it. I've been the one to uncover all the truths for his particular side of the family. So they were excited to hear about all that.
0: Sure. This. So yes. tell us about some of the details of this, because I know there was some challenge involved in this from Jesse himself, right?
3: Yeah, there was. (laughs) This is not something that is spread around by the James family and by a lot of people. Even when I reached out uh, to the Clay County Archives and talked to Chris Harris, he had no idea, no records of any of this actually happening. And he even challenged me on it and said, Are you sure this is not just a story? I said, look, these are the sources that I have. And it traces all the way back to an eyewitness who was a judge during that time who witnessed the whole thing. And he gave his account of it. I mean, you can't get any more close to accurate as that.
0: So what was the story? How did he arrest him?
3: So Joe Rickards was the first Republican sheriff elected in a Democrat town in a very long time. One day, a man named Sam Holmes arrived at the courthouse with a verbal message for Rickards from Frank and Jesse James. He told them that no Republican will ever put them behind bars. They're going to be coming into town, and there's going to be no Republican that will ever put them behind bars.
0: But Sheriff Joe said, yes, we're going to put him behind bars. Trust me, it's going to happen. It's going to be incredible. A Republican will do it. I know it. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, he, they took it as, as a dare, obviously. Right. You know, uh, Rickards was not a man to, for unnecessary trouble or quarreling, but he was not the type of man that would put up with any such impudence. So <laughs> he, he went and talked with Judge uh, Philander Lucas. He's the one who told this story to the newspaper. And he told him you know, what had happened, and Judge asked him, well, what are you going to do, Joe? And he didn't say a word. He just turned and gave him a very comical and significant wink, which means more than words
0: right, yeah, watch what's <laughs> going to happen exactly
3: exactly, so then the next day that the James Gaines came riding into town like they said they were going to shooting their guns, making a ruckus, scaring off people, and then they dismounted and went into the local saloon, and the judge is, is standing there watching all of this, wondering where the sheriff was. And there he was, standing across the road, wearing an overcoat that he'd never worn before with his hat tilted down over his eyes, and he watched the boys run into town, and they never saw him.
0: So <laughs> now, what, now, what year was this?
3: This was 1865. Okay. So this is before the James Gang actually got into doing all the robberies and going about the country. So this is still kind of early on before all of that. But they were still making trouble in the towns that they were in before all of that. Okay. So they were still making a name for themselves. Yeah. Well, then Sheriff Joe just crossed the street, walked up to the saloon, and as he stood there, he pulled out two six-shooters from underneath his overcoat and said, throw your hands up. And then the James gang turned around and saw what confronted them, and they obeyed very quickly. And Joe said, now then, you scoundrels, you said that no Republican could arrest <laughs> you or take you. I'll show you a trick about that.
0: Wow. And what
2: did
3: he do <laughs> with them? He took them. He marched them across the road over to the courthouse where the judge was and presented them to the courts. And sadly, they didn't really have any charges that they could level on them at that moment. So they kind of just spent a little time in jail till it cooled off and they had to release them. But not before Joe looked at them and said, you mind your P's and Q's.
0: <laughs> what a great story. This is fantastic. So talk about your sources. Where did you find some of this? Obviously, it started with somebody who gave you a little hint that this was yeah. out there.
3: Yes, and he's the one who originally started supplying the sources. He told me there was a couple of newspaper clippings, and the first book that I found was called Desperate Men, The James Gang and the Wild Bunch by James Horan, and that was published in 1949. And thanks to that, it then led me to the actual newspaper articles, because it had them in the book. So I was able to look them up on newspapers.com and get a couple of the newspaper articles that originally mentioned this.
0: So how close to the actual event were the newspaper articles?
3: The first that this story was ever mentioned was in 1902.
0: Oh, wow. So like and 30 some it was, odd years, 37 years yes. or something after it actually happened.
3: Yes. And I questioned that, why it was, you know, taking so long for this to come out, and Judge uh, Philander Lucas, like I said, he's the eyewitness who gave the story. He explained in the newspaper article that this was after the time that Jesse James had been reinterred because uh, he was getting grave robbed and his grave was being bothered. So they reinterred him and the stories were coming out again about how he was such a great outlaw. And (laughs) he got tired of all of these false stories coming about, especially the one that he'd never been arrested. So he wanted to set the record straight once and for all.
0: Wow. And it sounds like he did. And then it was repeated, I guess, a couple of other times, right?
3: It was repeated in a couple of different newspapers. And then another book uh, was written uh, by Ted Yateman. It's called Frank and Jesse James, the story behind the legend. And he also wrote an article for True West magazine, And then another book came out, Jesse James, Death of a Legend by Will Henry. And his book was then quoted in the 1950s by many different newspapers about this story. But it's like it keeps coming out, but then going away again. Like it just, you know, gets forgotten, you know, put in the dust again.
0: She's Jen Rickards from near St. Louis, Missouri, and her husband's ancestors, the only man in history to have arrested Jesse James, and she had no idea she was going to find that story. Amazing detective work there, Jen. Good going. Thank you so much. An ordinary person with an extraordinary find. And, of course, you can always reach out to us if you've got one to share. And coming up next, it's another Ask Us Anything segment. And today we've got back our Swiss Army knife of genealogists, the woman who knows about so many different aspects of it. It's Melanie McComb from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. How are you, Melanie?
4: I'm good,
0: Fisher. How are you? Awesome. And we have a great question here. This is from Robert in South Carolina, and he asks, What records are available if my relative's file was burned in the 1973 records fire in St. Louis? That is a great question. First of all, I guess we should just talk about the fire because it was pretty devastating.
4: Yes, absolutely. So what happened was, on July 12, 1973, a little bit after midnight, a fire was reported at the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri. And what was so devastating about the fire was just how much it reached all the different floors. The fire burned out of control for over 22 hours. It took two days before the firefighters could even re-enter the building. It was just so unsafe to get in there.
0: Well, and think about all the different war records that were lost. It wasn't just World War II.
4: Exactly. Yeah. There was a number of records that were being stored there at the time, the majority being the World War II. But you're right. Even the Air Force records were going through 1964 were actually lost as well. And some of the Army records going through 1960. And we're talking like 70 percent loss of both of those records. Wow. So
0: So this is why we have the question here from Robert. uh, What records are now available after his relatives' records were obviously lost in this fire?
4: Sure. So there's a couple of things to try to help rebuild some of that file. And one of the first things you want to look at is getting the separation discharge paperwork. And that can be obtained from your state adjutant general's office if you don't have it in your family's paperwork. For my grandfather, he was fortunate enough that he actually kept his own copy of the DD-214 with his personal papers in addition to filing with the state. And what's great about the paperwork is that it gives you the service number of the military veteran, what campaigns they saw, if they won any medals, their address after the war. So it gives a lot of great genealogical information to help understand what may have they have seen if they had served overseas, for
0: example. And is this then going to lead to other records perhaps in D.C.?
4: Absolutely, because then you can start getting into payment vouchers from the National Archives. Uh, medical and health records could be obtained as well, especially from next to kin. So you can really start to see what happened. Like if you had an ancestor that may have been uh, exposed to a particular gas or something, that would be in the medical file.
0: Wow. Okay, and that would be like a World War One vet uh, for for gas. Uh, you said e- gas.
4: Even World War Two, they actually were dealing with mustard gas. Um, huh. I believe there actually was a story on NPR where they actually started building a public database of people that actually were exposed to mustard gas
0: during World War Two. That's right. crazy. Had no idea.
4: Yeah, it was actually part of some government experiments that they actually were setting up. So it's really interesting what kind of information is starting to come out now.
0: And, you know, if you're going to write a story about your relative or your ancestor who served in World War II, I I really don't know how you would do it if you didn't go through this process to obtain all of this information.
4: Another way I would go about it, too, is, and you're right, it can be a little bit daunting, is going into the unit history of your ancestor. Right, right, right. So, for example, like my grandfather was part of the Thunderbirds, and he was one of the army regiments that actually liberated Dachau concentration camp. Uh. I can't imagine what it must have been like to see that but what I did is I started looking more into what they saw and started trying to trace their campaign all the way across Italy through North Africa and up through France just to be able to get an idea of what they might have seen each day.
0: Wow. So it sounds like there's still a lot you can get despite the fire. What a great question. This question comes from Pat in New Hampshire and Pat asks is there a process for obtaining Medals or awards for my World War II relatives? That is a great question. Of course, most of those World War II relatives are gone now, so it's now a process of proving your relationship to them, is it not, Melanie?
4: Absolutely. So you're right, and and it's not something that you generally can have the public request, so the medals are going to go to the next of kin. Mm -hmm. of the person that served in the military. So if you are a child or sister or brother, you can actually go in and and request these medals to be sent to you. So maybe you want to make like a shadow box of your ancestor, your relative's World War II service. You actually can apply through that through the National Archives, and they can send you the medals.
0: This is so cool. Now, I'm thinking the most common ones, I would think number one is a Purple Heart, right? Mm -hmm. And another one would be the World War II Victory Medal which pretty much everybody got, right?
4: You're right. Those are the most common ones. And then there are other ones, too, that you'd want to look into if they received any award for valor. My grandfather, for example, he won, I believe, the Silver Star, and that was a special one for, for bravery. He actually saved a number of his troops by throwing a grenade at Nazi soldiers that were firing down on them and basically saved them from being hunted down in the trenches by gunfire.
0: Wow. And so part of that whole thing with the Silver Star is also an explanation of what that person was given that award for, correct?
4: Right. There should be a small citation that goes with what they actually done. And a lot of times you find out those kind of write-ups are usually in the newspapers. So I actually had a little bit of a write-up in the newspaper that explained how he got that star.
0: Wow. Did he ever talk much about it?
4: You know, he actually died a few years after I was born, so I didn't really know him very well, but I was told that he was not some kind of parade maybe or something when he was coming home and celebrating his, his award, but no, he never really spoke of his service, and largely that's because based on what we talked about earlier was what he saw in the camps and everything, so I think it just really hit him hard, and he really locked away a lot of those memories.
0: Sure, absolutely, as so many of them did, and, and I think as anybody would if you saw those kinds of things. So what is the process now as we go through this? Where would you apply?
4: Sure. So if it's the Army, Air Force, Navy, or Marine Corps, you can go through archives.gov, which is the National Archives website, and they have a link on their website under military records to request the medals. And what they'll do is they'll ask you who you are next akin to the person that you're applying for the medals for. And then it'll also ask you for the service number, which you'll need from their discharge paperwork or any other documentation, as well as any other information about what their rank and uh, location, et cetera, so they can locate the actual copy of the file and see what medals they were awarded. Mm -hmm. For the Coast Guard, you have to write to the Coast Guard directly.
0: Okay. So do you have to actually prove your relationship, or do you just declare your relationship? I mean, is this like joining a lineage society where you have to provide, you know, your birth certificate and a marriage certificate or whatever it is, the principal document that shows your relationship?
4: Typically, you declare what your relationship is. Okay. So as as far as I'm aware, there's not anything you have, like a lineage society where they're actually asking you to prove the relationship. But what they are going to ask is, Especially if you are a little bit far removed than a child or a sibling, they're going to want a copy of their death record, obituary, something that proves that they actually are deceased and you're not just requesting medals for someone that might still be alive.
0: Sure. That's great information, and and we appreciate the question so much, Pat. And once again, if you have a question for us on any topic for genealogy or family history, just email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. As always, we appreciate all your expertise, Melanie McComb.
4: All right. Well, thank you. Have a great day. Hey, that's it for this week. We're running a little short.
0: We will talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to familysearch.org.